0: All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 47, for February 2023. Three more black trailblazers in medicine, computers, and entertainment. Hill East is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballackinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. February, Black History Month. Not all black trailblazers are megastars like Teddy Pendergrass or nationally known civil rights leaders like C. Dolores Tucker. James Alexander Batts, M.D., was an obstetrician-gynecologist who spent his career improving the medical outcomes for poor black pregnant women. Barbara Blackshear was a hidden figure in the computer industry who finished her career as a vice president for Xerox, Incorporated. And Douglas Jocko Henderson brought a style to the radio that few have been able to emulate and was a pioneer in the early days of rap and hip-hop. All three are interred at Laurel Hill West. You will hear their stories and more today on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Three more black trailblazers in medicine, computers, and entertainment. So As far as we know, the first African-American to practice medicine in the New World was James Durham, which is spelled in four different ways, D-U-R-H-A-M, D-E-R-H-A-M, D-U-N-H-A-M, and I've even seen it as D-E-R-A-M. James was born in 1762 in Philadelphia. He was an enslaved person. He was taught to read and write and instructed in the principles of Christianity by an early master. While he was still a boy, he was sold to Dr. John Kearsley, Jr., who also taught him to compound medicines. Kearsley was known as the Mad Tory Doctor. He was convicted of giving secrets to the British, and he died in prison in 1777. After passing through the hands of several more people, Durham ended up as the property of Dr. George West, surgeon of the 16th British Regiment, and he performed many menial tasks of the medical profession. At the close of the war, he was sold to Dr. Robert Dove of New Orleans, who liberated him after a few years. Durham then practiced medicine independently in New Orleans specializing in diseases of the throat, at that time diphtheria, quinsy, other ailments. Philadelphia's famed Benjamin Rush exchanged many letters with him about acute and epidemic diseases and often took his advice. Dr. Durham, who never attended a medical school, just disappears from the records about 1806. His final resting place is not known. After the Civil War, numerous schools were set up in the southern United States to educate freedmen, including several medical schools. The strongest of these were the School of Medicine at Howard University in Washington, D.C., founded in 1868, and Meharry Medical College of Nashville, Tennessee, founded in 1876. The first known black physician to graduate from a Philadelphia medical school was Nathan Francis Mossell, who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in 1882. You heard about one of his nieces, Sadie Tanner Mossell Alexander, in an earlier podcast. Thomas Jefferson Medical School's first black graduate was Algernon Brashear Jackson, class of 1901. Mossell was a leader in the black community. It was he who led the fight against the performance of a controversial play, The Klansman, at the Walnut Street Theater. You can hear about that incident on the podcast Adventures in Theater History Philadelphia, produced by Peter Schmitz. It was also Mossel who, along with Algernon Jackson and other black physicians, established the Frederick Douglass Hospital at 1520 Lombard Street in 1895. He served as its chief of staff until 1933. Several physicians took issue with Mossel's leadership and they broke away and formed Mercy Hospital at 17th and Fitzwater in 1907. These were the first two hospitals in the United States completely under the control of African Americans. In 1948, they merged to form Mercy Douglas Hospital. But they closed for good. In 1973, for financial reasons. One of the reasons for the closure of Mercy Douglas was probably the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which stated that no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity, receiving federal financial assistance. So when Medicare became law in 1965, it was an important financial and social change tool toward the integration of hospitals. Black patients no longer had to go to a black hospital. Medicare affected every hospital in the country. If you wanted to collect money from Medicare, you had to prove that you treated your patients without regard to their race, creed, or color. It also opened the doors for African-American medical professionals to train and practice at integrated institutions. For more information on early black hospitals in Philadelphia, see the Hidden City Philadelphia posting, The Rise and Decline of African-American Hospitals in Philadelphia, dated October 2, 2020. By Moira Schoffler. When hospital integration became law in 1964, Hahnemann University hired its first black physician, Dr. James Alexander Batts, then in his early 50s. Dr. Batts was born in Rocky Mount, North Carolina in 1913. He came north with his family and attended Philadelphia Public Schools from the fifth grade onward before he graduated from Overbrook High School. In 1931. He then earned his bachelor's degree from Temple University in 1937 and his medical degree from Howard University in 1941. It was followed by a one-year internship at Mercy Hospital in Philadelphia. During World War II, Dr. James Batts was the regimental surgeon with the famed 92nd Infantry Division, a black unit commanded by white officers. This was the famed Buffalo Soldiers, as reflected on their shoulder-sleeve insignia. The 92nd Infantry Division was the only African American Infantry Division that participated in combat in Europe during World War II. They fought in the North Apennines and the Po Valley. Other black units were used as support troops. As a major, Dr. Batts was the highest-ranking black officer in the division. He was awarded a World War II Victory Medal, Combat Medic Badge, and Bronze Star for meritorious service in support of combat operations in Italy from November 8, 1944 to May 2, 1945. The 92nd Infantry Division was the subject of one of Spike Lee's lesser-known films the 2008 Miracle at St. Anna. After the war, Batts returned to Philadelphia and he studied obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School in Medicine in 1948 and 49. He then took a three-year residency in that specialty at Harlem Hospital in New York. From 1952 until 1956, Batts conducted a private practice as he became board certified in obstetrics and gynecology in 1954. When the hospitals integrated in 1964, Dr. Batts returned to academia. After his two-year stint at Hahnemann, he moved to Temple University Hospital where he became chief of OBGYN clinics and then chief of community obstetrics and gynecology. From 1974 until 1979, he was also director of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Harlem Hospital. Dr. Batts concentrated on two primary objectives during his long and distinguished career. First, he devoted efforts to reducing the mortality rates of both mothers and infants. Secondly, he strongly recruited students of color to become members of the medical profession. Ever since records have been kept, there's been a marked disparity in the maternal infant mortality rates between black and white women. As early as 1880, 36% of reported deaths to black females were attributable to maternal causes, while only 27% of white deaths were By 1915 there were 11 black deaths from maternal causes for every 1,000 black live births compared to six for white women. By the start of World War II the white maternal mortality rate had been cut in half to three per thousand live births while black women still died at more than twice that rate at eight per thousand. There were six broad categories for maternal death, sepsis, Toxemia or eclampsia, hemorrhage, ectopic pregnancy, abortion slash miscarriage, and all other causes, the rare ones, stroke, pulmonary embolism, cardiomyopathy, etc. Despite the historical notoriety of illegal abortions, they accounted for only 4% of white maternal deaths and 2% of black maternal deaths in 1940. But in 1940, almost half of all black births were attended by a midwife or some other non-physician and occurred outside a hospital, while 60% of white births were attended by physicians in hospitals. In 1950, more than a quarter of black births were still being delivered by midwives. With the advent of Medicare and Medicaid, hospitals became the preferred place for childbirth for as many as 90% of black deliveries, leading to further reduction of both maternal and infant mortality. Prenatal care was another issue that Dr. Batts dealt with. Sample data from 1972, just 50 years ago, shows that only one out of four black mothers began her prenatal care during the first two months of pregnancy, compared to half of white mothers. 10% waited until the 7th month or later, compared with 4% for whites. And for one black woman out of every 25, there was no prenatal care whatsoever. It is entirely possible that as many as 25% of neonatal births and deaths were never reported were included in statistics until black women felt comfortable about being treated in hospitals. Then the number of unreported births fell to an estimated 1% among both blacks and whites. Now that is what Dr. James A. Batts was fighting against throughout his career. When he took over the OBGYN clinic at Temple, he insisted that all patients, regardless of payment status, were to be treated as private patients. At clinic visits, all patients were seen by an attending physician, as well as a resident or intern. He broke up the 15-bed wards so that every patient was offered a room with no more than three other patients. He also tried to arrange that a pregnant woman would be cared for by the same physician throughout her pregnancy. He struggled to make certain that pregnant poor women would have amenities which better-off women took for granted. Car fare to the clinic, daycare for non-school children, access to formula after the WIC program was introduced in 1975. WIC stands for Women, Infants, Children. Because of his concern, Dr. Batts served as Director of Maternal and Infant Care with the Philadelphia Department of Health for several years. The residents and nurses who worked with Dr. Batts during his years at Temple adored him. His oil portrait hangs in a major hallway of the first floor of the main building at Temple Hospital. I passed it dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, in my 13-year tenure at Temple. No matter where he was working, Dr. Patts had a great passion for attracting people of color into a career in medicine. He not only worked to get them into the school, he worked to keep them there, sometimes surreptitiously dipping into his own pocket to assist a student in need. And while on staff at Medical College of Pennsylvania, Dr. Batts threw an annual party for MCP's minority students and faculty at the Germantown Cricket Club at his own expense. I talked about the Germantown Cricket Club at length in an earlier podcast about five Worcester men all bones considered number 25. That's when I talked about the founder, William Roch Wister. Through the years he taught at Hahnemann, Temple University Hospital, the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University, and the Medical College of Pennsylvania. He was appointed full professor at the last three institutions. Dr. Batts was an officer in many community and national organizations. Among them, Planned Parenthood of America, the Pennsylvania Medical Society, the Family Planning Council of New York, the March of Dimes, the United Fund, Community College of Philadelphia, the Urban League, the Philadelphia OIC, Opportunities Industrialization Center, that was under Reverend Leon Sullivan, and the Christian Street YMCA. He was the first African-American to be selected President of the Obstetric Society of Philadelphia. He was also a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a member of many other medical societies. He was a member of the traditional black fraternities Kappa Alpha Psi and the non-college affiliated Sigma Pi Phi's Alpha Boule, founded in Philadelphia in 1904. Dr. Batts was also a Mason and a member of the James W. Grant Lodge at 131 F&AM, that's Free and Accepted Masons, at 15th and Catherine. In 1983, Dr. Batts gave a talk in Atlanta at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists' annual gathering. His topic was sex after menopause, which he recognized was variable. But he tried to bat away the misconception That a woman's sexual interest and activity should end at about 50 about the time a woman reaches menopause. He said, One of the best treatments for menopause is a loving and understanding husband. When James Alexander Batts died of cancer in August 1992 at age 78, he was still working for the betterment of medicine in Philadelphia. His funeral at St. Matthew AME Church on 57th Street between Vine and Race brought tributes from Mayor W. Wilson Good, among others, during the three-hour service. The pastor said that Dr. Batts loved Jesus and worked for the good of Jesus. That was the life he lived. He always talked about how he could help folks, and then he went out and he did it. William Morton who spent 12 years as Executive Director of the Christian Street YMCA, said, Never in my 35 years with the Y was he asked to do something and not do it. He was my mentor, not only in terms of operating the Y and getting funds, but also in his concern about me personally and my family. There's an expression we always use at the Y. No man ever stood taller than he who stooped to help another. Jim Batts stood as tall as they come. It was while doing his residency at Mercy Hospital in 1941 that James wed Ruth Silas, who was studying at the School of Nursing. Ruth had already had a daughter named Mercedes, with musician Mercer Ellington, son of Duke Ellington. That was in 1939. Mercedes Ellington was raised by her maternal grandparents, Louise Petgrave Silas and Alfred Silas. Mercedes became a respected dancer and choreographer on Broadway. She appeared in the New York productions of On the Town and Pal Joey. She was a member of the June Taylor Dancers for seven years. She briefly spent time on Broadway when her father, Mercer Ellington, did the run of Sophisticated Lady in the early 1980s. Mercedes Ellington is still very much involved in preserving the legacy of her grandfather who insisted that she call him Uncle Edward. James and Ruth Batts were married for 50 years and they had three daughters together. They were the twins, Deborah and Donna, born in 1947. Deborah graduated from Harvard Law School in 1972, and she quickly rose to judge. In June 1994, during Gay Pride Week, Deborah Batts was sworn in as a United States District Judge for Manhattan, the nation's first openly LGBT African-American federal judge. She died in 2020 after complications from knee surgery. At the time of her death, She was scheduled to oversee the Michael Avenatti-Stormy Daniels embezzlement trial. Her remains were cremated. A colleague said at her death that Deborah Batts literally broke down the closet door and allowed the rest of us to walk through it. Judge Batts and Supreme Court Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor were best friends, and Batts' portrait hangs at Harvard Law School. James' wife, Ruth Batts, was heavily involved in community education. She served as a member of the Board of Governors for the Philadelphia High School for Girls and as Vice President of the Philadelphia Chapter of Jack and Jill of America, an organization which provides leadership skills to children. Dr. James Alexander Batts was interred at Laurel Hill West in the Garden of Memories, Plot 931. Ruth joined him when she died in 2010. They have a simple bronze marker. I will assume that even if you have not seen the 2016 award-winning movie Hidden Figures or read the book that it is based on, you're familiar with the plot. Three African-American women, Katherine Johnson Mary Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn are essential members of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, during the early days of space exploration, especially during the 1950s and 60s. Johnson, played by Taraji P. Henson, is the math genius. Jackson, played by Janelle Monet, is the engineer. And Vaughn, played by Octavia Spencer, is the self-taught computer expert. Although Barbara Blackshear, born in 1935, never worked for NASA, she played a major role at both IBM and Xerox during her long career as a self-taught computer expert. At the time of her death in 2013, 10 years ago this month, she had risen to be vice president for strategic planning for Xerox. Of Philadelphia's involvement in developing computer technology dates to the mid-1940s when the electronic numeral integrator and computer, better known as ENIAC, was introduced in 1946. This was the first programmable electronic general purpose digital computer. ENIAC was designed to be primarily used to calculate artillery firing tables for the United States Army's Ballistic Research Laboratory. ENIAC was developed at the University of Pennsylvania's Moore School of Electrical Engineering, which had come into existence as the result of an endowment from Alfred Fittler Moore. The Moore family had come to Philadelphia in 1820, where the patriarch Abednego Moore established a wire-covering company. I do not know whether Abednego had siblings named Shadrach and Meshach, The company got its start by providing the millinery trade with covered wire for bonnets and hoop skirts. The Moore Company expanded its production and supplied all of the copper wire on 24 May 1844, when inventor Samuel Morse sent the first telegraph message from the Supreme Court chamber in the basement of the Capitol Building in Washington to the R and O Railroads Mount Clare Station in Baltimore. You remember that phrase, what hath God wrought. Abednego was joined in the wire business by his fourth son, Joseph, born in 1815. Joseph married Cecilia Fitler in the mid-1840s, and they had five children. Joseph became head of the company in 1853. Later, he was director of Gerard College. Now, Joseph and Cecilia's youngest son, Alfred, was born the following year. He took his mother's maiden name as his middle name. Cecilia Fittler's uncle was Mayor Edwin Fittler, who has the tallest obelisk at Laurel Hill East. Her father and mother are resting in Section K. Their stone is easily visible on the walk back to the gatehouse from Millionaires Row. By the turn of the twentieth century, Alfred Fittler Moore's company had continued its expansion to cover the needs of the telegraph, telephone, and electrical industries. They were the first producer of weatherproof cable. Charles Goodyear had discovered his process of rubber vulcanization in 1839. At Alfred's death in 1912 he was interred in the Moore family plot section J, plots 116 to 119 at Laurel Hill East. He directed that his estate be utilized to fund a special school the Alfred Fitler Moore School of Electrical Engineering was formally opened at Penn on 5 February 1924. They celebrate a centennial next year. This was the building where ENIAC was developed and built. ENIAC was 8 feet tall, 80 feet wide, functioned on vacuum tubes, and it dominated three walls of a massive room. The two primary engineers for ENIAC were J. Presper Eckert and J. W. Mockley, but the programmers were women. As in hidden figures, they were called computers. At the machine's grand unveiling, none of the women involved in programming it or creating the demonstration were invited to the formal dedication or to the celebratory dinner. Afterwards, in fact, their role was not known or recognized until many decades later. But by 2020, three of the Army's supercomputers were named Jean for Jean Bartik, Kay for Kay McNulty, and Betty for Betty Snyder. The programming these women did for ENIAC was the great-great grandfather, or if you prefer, great-great grandmother of everything that is on your smartphone or laptop or smartwatch. The woman's story is told in a documentary simply called The Computers. There's also a TED Talk on YouTube called The Secret History of the ENIAC Women that is probably worth your time. It's only about 15 or 20 minutes long. By the end of its operation in 1956, ENIAC contained 15,000 vacuum tubes, 7,200 crystal diodes, 1,500 relays, 70,000 resistors, 10,000 capacitors, and approximately 5 million hand soldered joints. It weighed more than 27 tons. It was roughly 8 feet by 3 feet by 100 feet in size. It occupied 1,800 square feet and it consumed 150 kilowatts of electricity. It was a monster. Now the next goal for Eckert and Mockley was to develop a commercial multi-purpose rapid computing machine at a moderate cost. They resigned from Penn and they incorporated as the Eckert Mockley Computer Corporation in 1948. 3747 Ridge Avenue, literally across the street from Laurel Hill East Cemetery. It was here that they built BINAC, while also developing with pioneer computer scientist Grace Murray Hopper, a more sophisticated, reliable, and user-friendly computer called UNIVAC, Universal Automatic Computer. Hopper, who was interred at Arlington National Cemetery, was the woman who accomplished the impossible. She taught the computer to understand English. For many years, the term UNIVAC was synonymous with the word computer. UNIVAC 1 used about 5,000 vacuum tubes. It only weighed 16,686 pounds. It consumed 125 kilowatts, and it could perform about 1,905 operations per second. The central complex alone, that is the processor and the memory unit, was 4.3 meters by 2.4 meters by 2.6 meters. And the complete system occupied more than 35.5 square meters of floor space. That's almost 400 square feet just of floor space for the computer. In the late 1950s, Barbara Blackshear entered into this world. She was born on 16 November 1935, the daughter of Douglas Jackson and Edna Henson. She was raised in West Philadelphia and graduated from Philadelphia High School for Girls, which had been established in 1848 as the Girls' Normal School at the intersection of Chester and Maple. It's a site long since paved over. It's covered by a parking lot at 8th and Arch Street. When Barbara attended the school, it was at the corner of 17th and Spring Garden. That is now the home of the Julia R. Masterman School. That school's namesake, of course, is interred at Laurel Hill West in the Moreland section. Philadelphia High School for Girls moved to Broad and Olney in 1958. It's been there ever since. After high school, Barbara Blackshear took classes at Rutgers University, and she began working with computers at the Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company, which had been founded in Philadelphia in 1847. She worked at the 6th and Walnut Complex. Penn Mutual's main offices are now located in Horsham. While with Penn Mutual, Barbara learned data processing on the job. She was briefly married to Donald Blackshear in the early 1960s, but that marriage ended in divorce. She worked as a systems analyst for Great American Insurance Company in New Jersey, and then with Chase Manhattan Bank in New York. A systems analyst is a person who analyzes, designs, and implements information systems. They assess the suitability of information systems in in terms of their intended outcomes, and then they liaise with end users, software vendors, and programmers to achieve those outcomes. They can also serve as a change agent who identifies needed organizational improvements, designs systems to implement these changes, and then trains and motivates others to use the systems. Barbara moved to IBM in the days that it was introducing the 1401, the first mass-produced computer for the business industry. International Business Machines Corporation had been founded in 1911 as the Computing Tabulating Recording Company. But after taking the IBM name in 1924, it soon was the leading manufacturer of punch card tabulating systems. The IBM 1401 today is considered the Ford Model T of the computer industry. It was mass produced, and because of its sales volumes, in its first five weeks, IBM received 5,200 orders that's more than they had anticipated for the life of the machine by the end of its 10-year run more than 12,000 units had been produced at a monthly rental of $2,500 that now would be closer to $25,000 a month to rent the IBM 1401 and IBM couldn't even keep up with the orders In September of 1969, Barbara met David Goodchild while she was working at Chase. It was a day and a time, 1.30 p.m., that Goodchild said changed his life. They soon married, and they were together until she died 43 years later. Barbara next worked for Honeywell in New York. It was in 1971 that she joined Xerox as a systems analyst. A few years later, she moved back to the Philadelphia area to work as branch manager for Xerox in Fort Washington. And then in the 1980s, she moved to Dallas to work at marketing for Xerox. In a huge move in the mid-1980s, she moved to Palo Alto in California's Silicon Valley. She became a production manager for the Xerox 8010 computer, better known as Xerox Star. Xerox was founded in 1906 in Rochester, New York as the Haloid Photographic Company. It made photographic paper and equipment. Its first crude copy machine was made in 1938, but it took more than 20 years of improvements and refinements before it was ready for commercial use. The term xerography, meaning dry writing, came into use in the 1950s. Haloid changed its name to Haloid Xerox in 1958, and then simply the Xerox company in 1961. Their first successful dry paper copier, the Xerox 914, came to prominence in 1959, and by the mid-1960s was generating revenues of more than half a billion dollars. The Xerox Star Workstation, officially named Xerox 8010 Information System, was introduced in April 1981. This was the first commercial personal computer to incorporate technologies which we now think of as standard a bitmap display, a window based graphical user interface, a GUI. This allowed users to interact with electronic devices through Graphical icons instead of text-based UIs, text navigation, folders, a two-button mouse, Ethernet networking, file servers, print servers, and email. When introduced, the Xerox Star System cost about $75,000, It's about a quarter of a million dollars in today's dollars, and that was $16,000 for each additional workstation. The mainframe case was the size of a small refrigerator. It gained the nickname Xerox Alto. This is the unit that grabbed the attention of Apple, Incorporated founder Steve Jobs. His 1983 product, Apple Lisa, with its 5 megabyte hard drive, I have to laugh at that, uh, had taken many of its revolutionary features directly from the Xerox Alto. But it was glitchy and cost prohibitive. The Lisa sold for $10,000 in 1983. Now, the Macintosh, which followed just a few years later, incorporated all of the advantages of the Alto and the Lisa, but it cost only $2,500. In her obituary, Barbara's husband, David, said that she was the person who reluctantly introduced Steve Job's to the star computer only at the insistence of her superiors. After Silicon Valley, Barbara moved to Xerox operations in Stamford, Connecticut, which is a home to nine Fortune 500 companies. She then spent several years traveling the world working in international sales for Xerox before she retired in 2002. Barbara and David were active in amateur theatrics. And they trod the boards together in a group called the Cludgeon Theater Gang. I found nothing on newspapers.com or elsewhere on the web about this group. I consulted my friend Peter Schmitz, who is a theater historian. He was stumped. I consulted fellow cemetery tour guide Paul Sukhuazian, who knows everything about Armenians in Philadelphia for the last century and a half, and he didn't have any information either. So the Cludgeon Theater Gang remains a mystery to me, even though uh, Barbara and David were involved in it for 15 years. Barbara was also an avid gardener, and she kept a library of more than 7,000 books in her Winfield home. After her death in 2013, she was interred at Laurel Hill West in the tiny Mayfair section with other family members and a simple marker I'm going to take a quick break before we get back and finish with our last story of the day I am pleased to say that uh, well I want to thank you you're starting to give me some reviews on Apple Podcast and I think it's helping we're up to 33 reviews all of them are 5 star There have been more than 24,000 downloads. This is the 65th episode between the two podcasts. Keep telling your friends if you enjoy the podcast. And uh, pick an episode that you really like and say, take a listen to this and, and see what you think of it. Show people how to access podcasts. I'm still surprised at the number of people who think you need something special to listen to a podcast. When all you really need to do is push a start button and go. If you want to get in touch with me about um, the podcast or something at the cemetery, it's joe at net. So what is coming up? Well, a fairly busy February. It's Valentine's Day and Black History Month, so you know what the themes are going to be. There is a Hotspots and Storied Plots tour on Saturday, February 11th at 10 a.m. That is an introductory tour to Laurel Hill East. And then Sunday, the 12th, it's Till Death Do Us Part, Love Stories of Laurel Hill East. That is from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Sunday, February 12th. Get your ticket for that. That one sometimes sells out. There's a virtual Hotspots and Storied Plots tour by Zoom, pay what you wish. That's Wednesday, February 15th from 6.30 until 8 p.m. A free online lecture with ecologist and birder Mike McGraw called For the Birds, Philadelphia Ecosystems. That'll be Thursday, February 16th from 6.30 until 8 p.m. All thorns, no roses. This is a great tour. Sarah Hamill has so much fun with this. It's called Love Gone Wrong at Laurel Hill West. She will spin tales that you will not believe. Saturday, February 18th 1pm until 3pm. Make sure you sign up for that one. All thorn and no roses. There is an online discussion about somebody I covered in a podcast last year. Marion Stokes. It's um, thursday february 23rd from six thirty until 8 p.m the, the full title is marion stokes community media and writing history there will be people from philly cam involved in the discussion and philly cam is the place that has wppm lp people powered media where i do my weekly radio show on Tuesday afternoon from 2 until 4. You can find them online at phillycam.org slash listen. Or if you are close to Center City, you can pick up the signal at 106.5 FM. There's another Hotspots tour, Friday, February 24th from 10 until noon. And then there is a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour at Laurel Hill West on Saturday the 25th at 10 a.m. And finally, for February, Black Trailblazers of Laurel Hill West. Sunday, February 26th, 10 a.m. It is a wonderful Black History Tour. You're going to hear about some of the same people I talk about in the podcast, but a lot of other folks also that I just haven't gotten to yet. So that is what you can expect at Laurel Hill for the tours for the month of February. Let's get back to the show. remember the first time you heard rap music? I was thinking about that question as I started working on this podcast segment. Oh, surely it had to predate Muhammad Ali when he was bragging about how he would handle George Foreman.
1: Last night, I had a dream. When I got to Africa, I had one hell of a rumble. I had to beat Tarzan's behind first for claiming to be the king in the jungle. For this fight I've wrestled with alligators, I've tussled with a whale, I done handcuffed lightning and put thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. I have murdered a rock, I injured a stone, and I hospitalized a brick. I'm so bad I make medicine sick. I'm so fast man, I can run through a hurricane and don't get wet. When George Fuller meets me, he'll pay his debt. I can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. Wait till you see Muhammad Ali.
0: Or was it Gil Scott Heron in 1970?
1: You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox and four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spyro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from the Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by
0: the shape of a war theater. Wait. Maybe it was the last poets, they were in 1970 also. Before that, there was that silly tune by Pigmeat Markham in 1968. listening to pop music on the radio in New York City or Philadelphia in the mid 1950s you were getting a foreshadowing of what to expect from an R&B disc jockey by the name of Douglas "Jocko" Henderson Douglas Henderson was born in Baltimore in 1918. That's two years before Westinghouse launched the first commercially licensed radio station in the United States, KDKA, in Pittsburgh. Henderson was from a black middle-class family of educators. In fact, his father was superintendent of schools in Baltimore. In March of 1923, the state of Maryland got its first licensed broadcast station, WKC in Baltimore. It broadcast local performers and news from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. three days weekly. Other local stations came on the air a short time later. Earlier stations had begun in New York City more than 10 years before this, and the music played was almost always live. The concept of playing recorded music over the radio was slowly introduced despite protests from the recording artists who tried to prevent their work from being played on the air. In 1935, American radio commentator Walter Winchell used the term disc jockey, a combination of disc, referring to the disc records, and jockey, a machine operator, as a description of radio announcer Martin Block, the first announcer to become a star. While his audience was awaiting developments in the Lindbergh kidnapping, Block played records and created the illusion that he was broadcasting from a ballroom with the nation's top dance bands performing live. The show, which he called Make Believe Ballroom, was an instant hit. Douglas Henderson grew up knowing the value of higher education. He even spent some time at Tuskegee Institute. But the lure of a life on the radio waves was too strong. He spent a few years as a car salesman while admiring a disc jockey friend who was driving a Chrysler Imperial that had been introduced in 1926, and his friend wore a diamond ring, quote, as big as my eye. He was 34 years old when he took his first on-the-air job in 1952 at WSIDAM, which had launched in 1947. He was paid $1 per hour. He kept his day job, but started developing his on-air personality. Word got out to Philadelphia, and in 1953, he accepted an offer from WHATAM 1340. WHAT had started on 17 October 1922 as a 100-watt station on Spring Garden Street. Their call sign, WHAT, was not intended as a question. Radio stations east of the Mississippi generally have call signs that begin with the letter W. KYW in Philadelphia and KDKA in Pittsburgh are very rare exceptions to that rule. The H.A.T. that followed the W was said to represent William Penn's hat on his statue atop City Hall. After it went through several ownership changes, W.H.A.T. was the first U.S. radio station to hire a full-time black announcer in 1945. WHAT and its direct competitor, WDAS, concentrated on music for a black audience, mostly rhythm and blues, doo-wop, and African-American rockers. And the music was played by black DJs like Henderson and Georgie Woods, the man with the goods. While WIBG, Wibbage, and WFIL featured white DJs like Joe Niagara and High Lit, who were born 10 to 15 years after Henderson. Shortly after he arrived at WHAT, Douglas Henderson took the nickname Jocko because he could play with its syllables and make it rhyme. He established a pattern which became his calling card based on a combination of street slang and scat singing. E. titliak, you know this is the jock, and I'm back on the scene with the record machine.
1: I stopped using Doug Henderson and just picked up on the name Jocko because Jocko rhymed with daddy and the mommy and the hottest show on the radio and instead of uh, having just the regular show, we had a rocket ship show and I borrowed the rocket ship show from Hot Rod, who was in Baltimore during that time. That's what he called his show. Use the rocket ship. And uh, we began to, you know, rhyme up everything. Eat, tiddly yop. This is the jock, and I'm back on the scene with the record machine saying, goop pop a how do you do? All kinds of rhymes. Hello, hello, hello. Back with the show. This is your engineer, Chaco. Back on the scene with the record machine. Correct time now, 6.16. And the kids picked up on this. Wherever I would go, they would say the rhymes, you know?
0: Jocko Henderson became one of the top disc jockeys in Philadelphia and in New York City. For seven years, in the 1950s and 1960s, he would take the 2 a.m. train to the Big Apple to do his morning show at WLIB and then turn around and come back home to do an afternoon show in Philadelphia. At one time, before satellites made coast-to-coast broadcasting a reality he had daily 2-hour tape shows for stations in Boston, New York, St. Louis, and Detroit and a 3-hour program for Miami station in addition to his Philadelphia show. Now in those early days of loose rules no one had ever heard the term payola, a portmanteau of payment and other popular terms ending in Ola, Victrola, Crayola, Pianola, Shinola. You can learn more about the beginnings of the Victrola, Albones considered number 38 through the looking glass. Nowadays, Payola is defined as paying a commercial radio station to play a song without the station disclosing the payment. Jaco freely admits that in his early days of radio, It helped my car sales. In those days you could actually talk about your cars on the air. I used to advertise a restaurant and get my free food. And clothing stores, I got my free clothing. The car sales really zoomed at least 500%. Rock and roll disc jockeys like Alan Freed lost their jobs because of payola. Local radio and television personality Dick Clark of American bandstand fame got caught up in the scandal, but avoided repercussions by divesting himself of music company holdings before his trial. Jocko was accused, but never got called to any investigations, and he kept his job. He got into producing shows for the legendary Apollo Theater in Harlem. He called them Jocko's Rocket Ship, and he made his entrance as the ace from outer space. He was sort of a precursor to George Clinton's mothership connection and Afrofuturism. Overall, he introduced more than a hundred shows at the Apollo. And he showed Harlem, for the first time, Little Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, and a whole lot of other folks, including Sam Cooke.
1: Well, you know, I'm playing the records. I know what's, what's hot, what's not. So we used to break records, break them wide open, like a Sam Cooke record. Sam Cooke came by my house one night, about four, one morning, really about four o'clock in the morning. Somebody was kicking on the front door. I'm sound asleep. And I said to my wife, who in the world is that banging that door like that, you know? So I put my, I put my bathrobe on, I put my gun in my pocket, and I went down and I peeped through a little, little peephole, and I saw these fellas, I put the light on, I saw two fellas out there, and they looked like very, very nice guys. You know, I said, well, let me see what they want. I, I hollered through the door, I said, uh, what do you want? He said, Jocko, I said, yeah. He said, my name is Sam Cook, and this is Bumps Blackwell, my manager. And we have a record we think is going to be a big smash, and we just wanted to let you hear it. And pardon us for coming out here at 4 o'clock in the morning. I opened the door, took him downstairs, heard the record, went upstairs, got a contract from the Apollo Theater. Three weeks from that day, I had Sam Cook on the show in the Apollo Theater, and his record went, in three weeks, number one in the country. When I heard it, it just made me feel good cuz i knew it was a smash okay so i hey i contracted him right there for the apollo theater thank goodness for that and sam and i were very very friendly from that day on you know until the tragedy happened of course mm-hmm. darling you send me i know you send me darling
0: Here's another story from his days at the Apollo. I'm in the dressing room at the Apollo Theater when this lady comes in and puts a gun to my head. She's going to shoot me because I never answered her fan mail. So I tell her if she puts a star on her envelopes, I'll look for her mail and answer her letters. So she put the gun away. And you know something? That lady wrote to me until I left radio. I went to her birthday parties and family get-togethers for years. In 1961, after the Soviet Union launched Yuri Gagarin into space and brought him back safely, Tens of thousands of congratulatory telegrams went to Moscow, including one that was signed by Jocko Henderson, rocket ship commander, radio station WDAS, Philadelphia. When the Museum of Soviet Armed Forces opened in 1965 in Moscow, artifacts from the United States included a shredded metal fragment from Francis Gary Powers' U 2 spy plane, a cheap ballpoint pen, an illustrated souvenir booklet of Washington, D.C., and the telegram from rocket ship commander Jocko Henderson. He even got involved in some studio work with producer Ed Chalpin and co-wrote a proto-rap number called Suey. Jocko played drums, and the vocalist, if you want to call her that, was Jane Mansfield. Oh, and the guitarist, eh, some kid that had just gotten out of the army, he was from the northwest some his name was Jimi Hendrix. When Jocko was offered an opportunity to become involved with Hendrix, he declined. He said he just couldn't understand the type of music that that young man was playing.
1: Makes my liver quiver. and it all i got
0: Around 1968, Jocko saw that his rocket ship was losing altitude, and he moved on to his next gig, a black-oriented magazine called Philly Talk. It developed a decent circulation among the Philadelphia black community, and in 1970, he was courted by both Milton Shapp, who served as Pennsylvania governor from 1971 to 1979, and Frank Rizzo. Philadelphia's mayor from 1972 to 1980. Schapp and Rizzo did not like each other, but they both loved Jocko and his audience. In 1972, when former Vice President Hubert Humphrey passed through Philadelphia on his way to Washington, he stopped at Jocko's home on Wissahickon Avenue for a social visit during a big party. At the time of his visit, Humphrey was the leading contender for the Democratic nomination for the 1972 presidency, which eventually was won by George McGovern. But there was talk at the time that Humphrey was open to the idea of a black vice president, and many people assumed that Jocko was on the list. After Philadelphia talk folded in 1978, We've hung in there for ten tough years, partner. But ads were hard to come by. It was like pulling teeth, and Jocko was no dentist. His next project was a program for students who lacked basic retention skills called Get Ready. It used cassette tapes to reach students using rap music.
1: See, my father was superintendent of schools in Baltimore, so I've lived with educators all of my life, right? Hey, it's, it's phenomenal what is happening with it, and how fast the kids are learning this way, how motivated they are. And uh, like I told you before, they can't wait to get to school. That has never happened before. And the worst kids are the best students with the rap music, because they're in the street rapping. Okay, so there you go. How are you gonna beat that? The kids who really Uh, disrupt the schools are now very passive it's unbelievable unbelievable no kidding and the classes that are wrapping together they're the best of friends now all the kids are the best of friends they're in competition who can wrap the history the best who can wrap the times table the best you know it's amazing we got thousands of letters from parents thanking us for the Get Ready program. And same thing with the educators. And they're buying it like, oh, unbelievable. In
0: 1979, Jocko hooked up with Gamble and Huff's Philadelphia International to release the song The Rocket Ship and Rhythm Talk. The Rocket Ship is a spacey jazz-influenced disco cut that really sounds like nothing else from the era. Rhythm Talk, Finds Jocko rapping over the music from McFadden and Whitehead's classic ain't no stoppin' us now. You
1: gotta be bad there, hang with me. You gotta rock with the do the boogaloo too. Ooh, papa, boom, bang, a lang, a loo, I got tons and tons of fun for you. real good. Eat the, yum, This is all the scene machine, said, j- bad. J- this bad jam. D- to my loud and clear, the party is over here, do it on the sofa, do it on the chair, do it on the roof, it's good up there, do it in the kitchen, do it in the hall, do it in the closet, up against the wall, take your buns, by the guns to the beat, the drums, turn your boom tank loose and have big fun, Great the with a this is talking about i
0: In 1993, a banner year for the Philadelphia Walk of Fame, Jocko was elected along with fellow DJs Georgie Woods, High Lit, Cherry Blavitt, Joe Grady and Ed Hurst, Joe Niagara and Sid Mark, along with other Philly musical icons, Daryl Hall and John Oates, the Heath Brothers, Kenneth Gamble, Leon Huff and Thomas Bell. I told you it was a good year. Questlove of the Roots Says that Jocko is the father of Rap MC in Philadelphia. Jocko died after a prolonged illness in 2000. In 1950, he had met a school teacher named Jane Elizabeth West. They were married the next year, and their son Douglas Jr. was born in Philadelphia in 1953. Jane retired from the school district in the early 1990s. She outlived Jocko by 20 years. The Hendersons are interred together in a wall crypt in the Pines Terrace section of Laurel Hill West. That's in the part of the cemetery across Riders Ferry Road, separated from the main part of the cemetery. The Jocko stories will live as long as people who knew the man continue to talk about him. He was indeed one of a kind.
1: of dancing and leaves and grass stony plots that are up-
0: mid-February edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West stories, I will continue our Black History Month excursion with a historical look at Swimming While Black in Philadelphia. Raphael and Julia E. Cole, both interred at Laurel Hill West, helped to solve the problem by forming the Nile Swim Club, which is still in existence. Look for that podcast on February 15th. March episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will talk about shattering a few glass ceilings for Women's Month. Nellie Nielsen, an American historian who was the first female president of the American Historical Society. The Shipley sisters, Hannah, Elizabeth, and Catherine, opened a prep school for girls across the street from Bryn Mawr College and fed hundreds of women into the higher education system. And one of my fellow guides, Pat Rose, has volunteered to tell us the amazing story of Sarah York Stevenson, an archaeologist who specialized in Egyptology, a founder of the Penn Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, and a fierce advocate for women's rights. Look for that on March 1st, wherever you get your podcasts. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free as is parking in the teeny tiny lot across the street. Uh, you can park on the grounds though, just you know, be sensible about it. Don't run over any stones and make sure people can get by wherever you park. There is an app you can download for a self-guided tour through Laurel Hill East, 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Lots of parking there, both at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Public transportation, on the other hand, is a little dicey. Your best bet is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid pedestrian bridge. I know you've always wanted to walk on that bridge. Now's your chance. Then you come up, I'll admit it, it's a fairly steep hill, a writer's ferry road, but there's an entrance to the cemetery near the Pet Cemetery. There are also downloadable audio tours that talk about the people interred along the routes through the cemetery. There's one that goes from the Barmouth entrance at the Kidwood Heritage Trail all the way to Ryder's Ferry, and then the other one goes in the other direction. Each of them is 40 to 45 minutes, but you're going to want to stop and look in the mausoleums, look at some of the stained glass. So Each of them is about an hour. You can can do your own two-hour tour by downloading both of those. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., through the end of March and we really do welcome dog walkers bike riders, photographers, painters bird watchers, nature buffs tree and plant lovers and strollers both the two footed and four wheeled variety as I mentioned before we give lots of historic tours and there's still an occasional pay what you wish virtual tour via Zoom find out more laurelhillphl.com If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you will get a daily reminder of some of our inhabitants and our activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have an opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. I've submitted the first one for the year. Um, It's not been sent out yet, but be ready to get it. Go ahead and get your membership for the Friends of Laurel Hill. By the way, the key to finding the gift shop online, I know it's hard to find. Click on Support, and then look over in the left-hand column all the way down, and it says Gift Shop. There you go. That's how you find the gift shop. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine, Temple University. I remind you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Again, my email address, joe at joelex.net and coming up next is the bibliography. Most of the material I got from Dr. James Alexander Batts came from Various newspapers going back to 1945 when he was awarded the Bronze Star. I was totally taken aback to find out that James Batt's wife, Ruth Batts, was Mercedes Ellington's mother. I had absolutely no idea. I'm a huge jazz head and think Duke Ellington is one of the top ten composers of the 20th century. I was familiar with his son Mercedes' work, but I, and I knew that Mercedes was Mercer Ellington's daughter, but I did not know her mother was buried at Laurel Hill West. Ruth Bance. Two articles that I found useful for well, you'll you'll hear in the titles. Um, there's one called "The Historic Background of the Negro Physician." It's by Kelly Miller from the Journal of Negro History, April 1916. Volume 1, number 2, pages 99 to 109. That gave me a good historical perspective on black physicians in the United States before the 20th century. And then a more recent one is Maternal Mortality in the United States. The author is Anne S. Lee. Sources Phylon, P-H-Y-L-O-N. Third Quarter, 1977, volume 38, number 3. Pages 259 to 266. As far as Barbara Blackshear, again, most of this came from newspapers. There wasn't that much on her. Uh, The story of Abednego Moore and Alfred Fittler Moore, I actually got from the University of Pennsylvania website about the Moore building of engineering. And there was a nice history of ENIAC there. The history of BINAC and UNIVAC I got from another computer history website. Finally, Jocko Henderson. The newspaper articles on him start in 1958. And talks about all of the shows that he did at the Apollo. Uh, There's one that's titled Rocket Ship Commander handles. The Rock and Roll There's a nice history of black radio I found It's called The Canaries in Studio A and Other Tales of Washington Radio by Sam Smith That's Washington History, Volume 7, Number 2 Fall, Winter, 1995-96 Pages 4-25 through African American History by several authors The lead author is John M. Glenn with one N That's from the Indiana Magazine of History, December 2004, volume 100, number 4, pages 321 to 345. Okay, I think that does it. If you ever have a question about where I got information on people, don't hesitate to email me, joe at joelex.net, and I will try to dig up my reference. I know that newspapers are not always right, and sometimes I kind of put a disclaimer on something, like... Like the story that was in Barbara's obituary, that she's the one who told Steve Jobs about all the cool new things that were on the Xerox computer, and then he immediately stole them. Um, I don't know if that's 100% true, but it's a great story. So I included it. Okay, uh, if you're a regular listener, I will see you in about two weeks. Stay safe, stay well.